This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my co-host, political scientist Ryan Teton. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm glad to have you back again. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of stuff to talk about this week. We're going to be talking about that big Fox settlement with Dominion, uh, Diane Feinstein and the Judiciary Committee, the problems there, an important free expression ca- case before the Supreme Court. And how could we not talk about uh, Bud Light and Dylan Mulvaney, uh, maybe some stuff on Justice Thomas and corruption. It's, it's a really full slate, and we're going to get started with it in just one second. All right, Ryan. So, you know, you've done the show a couple of times now, and I thought it was, well, you had more than enough experience now to jump in the driver's seat. And, and I I appreciate you doing that. Now I can just kind of kick back and sort of, you know, a pine at my leisure sort of thing. And so I am looking forward to it. And so why don't you get us started off today? Well, uh, I mean, my goal is to make you not regret anything you just <laughs> said in that regard. Um, yeah, the first story. So I, I'd like to get us started. Um, Fox settling with Dominion. So I'd like to start with a political article uh, that said that lawyers for Dominion announced that Fox News and the parent company, Fox Corporation, had agreed to settle the case for $787 million, less than half of Dominion's claim of $1.6 billion in damages. And I thought it would be useful to try and get a translation uh, for everybody why this was settled uh, as as opposed to uh, becoming one of the biggest public court cases in history. Uh, So what we find is if we're looking into the case that Dominion actually had standing, that's the first important point uh, for charging Fox with acting with actual malice. Now, the first part is standing and standing is important, especially if you're dealing with a court case, because it means that they had uh, actually suffered some kind of loss at the hands of Fox News. Actual malice is a little bit more difficult. Now, when we're looking at court cases and even those that we'll be discussing today further on, the words themselves uh, become very important. And with actual malice, what this means is that there is a very, very high bar uh, for proving high or actual malice um, because uh, defamation itself is very difficult to prove. And so if you're talking defamation, that's one thing. If you're talking uh, the next level up of actual malice, it becomes something else. The claim is that Fox defamed the election tech that Dominion makes. Quote, to falsely claim that the company had raided the election against the former president. However, and this is another important point, pretrial discussions had already determined before the case was even going to begin that these claims were not only true, but the judge ruled they were indisputable. So the entire case about saying this did not occur was already over before it started. 
And Fox would have to act with, again, actual malice and reckless regard. And the quote was that the company's lawyers amassed internal communications among Fox executives, hosts, and employees with editorial responsibilities in which they appeared to acknowledge in real time and to varying degrees that the claims aired against Dominion were false. And so we see a giant payout, but not necessarily, um, I guess, the indictment that CNN was all hoping for. Are they crying in popcorn? And Mike, I think that's what uh, I asked you a couple questions on this. Uh, and, and first is, uh, please correct anything that I said that uh, was misinterpreted uh, because the mistakes are all mine um, uh, on that regard. Um, but secondly, you know, what do you see as the long term ramifications here, not only for media coverage? That's going to be very important. Uh, especially media coverage and elections, uh, but for Fox News. And so I'll, I'll kick any of that to your direction. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it was a significant settlement. Uh, uh, revenue for Fox last year was around $14 billion, And so that settlement's around five and a half, five point six percent of their yearly revenue. So it's not catastrophic, but it's certainly they're going to feel it. And I should point out that there's still the uh, there's a, still a Smartmatic suit against Fox. And I'm sure that when Fox's attorneys were settling this, they understood that this was going to set sort of the tone for those, you know, for that subsequent lawsuit. So it's not necessarily over. It's also not necessarily over for a lot of the folks who appeared and uh, with these lies on Fox, like Rudy Giuliani, like Laura Ingram, they're also being sued for, you know, plenty of money. And so uh, I think that if anything, this should have uh, the positive spin, I think, is that this should have a chilling effect on false speech. Uh, and I think it will for to a certain extent. But my more cynical side says, well, you could probably say some of the same sort of things, just use a little bit more innuendo. And my God, don't talk about these things being false and text messages. That always, that always baffles me that these people would either be so ignorant or I guess just have such hubris that they would think, well, certainly they'll never take our text messages. And just that, I, I don't know, Ryan, if I were involved in some sort of illegal act, potentially illegal activity with you, I would call you up on the phone or use an encrypted line or do something. Uh, and I, I, I don't know that I'm any smarter than Tucker Carlson, but boy, that sure seems dumb on his part. I think it's it's case in point, unfortunately, for some of the media. I, I can hasten back to Donna Brazil when working for CNN, uh, sending emails of all of the planned questions to then candidate Hillary <laughs> Rodham <Yeah>. Clinton <laughs> so that she would have a leg up on the competition going into a national presidential debate. Um, I, I I wonder if the rhetoric is going to change. I mean, they're, they're going to settle. That That's fine. But one of the things that I found uh, in a study with the students um, who helped conduct it was, uh, and my wife, actually, Tanya, uh, we looked back at all the presidential debates that had occurred from the year 2000 um, until the present day uh, at the questions that were asked, because, uh, you know, there are only about three or four official presidential debates. And what we found was that the questions in roughly 2016, um, you know, 2012-ish, were starting to change um, to be more personal attack questions and a lot less actual informational spread question. And what I mean by that is, you know, what is your plan for healthcare was uh, replaced with he's called your wife X. You've said that he sweats too much on Y. Uh, is he a blank? You know, and so. Um, 
that vitriolic speech, um, I lament because as a political scientist, I sat there and, and said, well, that means people aren't going to get information. They're going to be voting for, I guess, a brand or a personality. Um, and so it was really hindering or hurting kind of what I thought were the presidential debate processes that, that helped spread information for the election. And then, you know, you didn't see a backtrack of it, Mike. And I, th- I promise I'm getting to a point here, but it moved forward instead to the point where you have an entire uh, network endorsing um, not only things that didn't occur, but everybody knew didn't occur. Um, so what does that mean then for our elections coming up next? I mean, does Fox go all in and just double down and go, we'll pay every time? Uh, or is it a, a revamp on how media covers things? You know, I, I think it seems to me that the, the story is that Fox News realized that they either had to lie or endorse lies, at least implicitly, or lose audience to like Newsmax or OAN. And they basically kind of boxed themselves into this corner. And it was clear that you know, Carlson and others were furious that they were actually not lying and they were bleeding audience. And so that was the, uh, the, the sort of uh, economic imperative of it. And I don't think that changes at all. And, and so that's why I think probably my optimistic scenario aside, uh, I think they're just going to be better about not actually rising to that level. I'm sure that uh, Rupert, you know, talked to Tucker and Laura and the rest of the, the happy crew and said, listen, uh, how about not texting about this stuff next time? You know, I'll get you some encrypted phones, whatever you need. But uh, yeah, I think they're just going to be smarter about it. And so, because I don't see this going away. And, you know, also I'd say they, it was worth the price, I think, because the last thing they wanted was Murdoch and Carlson and the rest of them on the stand, because even that, that would be difficult to keep from a lot of people. Cause right now I think a lot of the Fox viewers are only marginally aware of this Fox understandably has almost not covered it at all. I think uh, it, they got like six minutes of coverage in the days after it came out or something like that. So, I mean, I, they, they're in this bubble. I, they don't I really know. And there's an hour long special coming up called the, you know, the, the Fox tragedy or something. No, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> but it's on the way, right? So, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I think this is maybe helpful really marginally, but I don't really think this necessarily changes things. Maybe for maybe for certain actors who don't have the legal defense uh, capabilities that Fox does. So maybe if you're Mike, Mike Lindell, who I just, this is kind of connected to this. I think uh, an arbitrator just ruled that he has to pay out somebody $5 million because he made this challenge saying, if you can prove my data on Donald Trump winning the election wrong, I'll pay you $5 million and it will be settled by binding arbitration. And it went to binding arbitration and the arbitrator said, yeah, yeah, he proved you wrong. And Lindell says he's going to fight it in court, which might be tricky because it's difficult to take binding arbitration to a court. But I'm I'm sure Michael just try to do that or sell a bunch of pillows or whatever he needs to do. I don't know. But so I do think there is some of a, I guess what I call a positive chilling effect on that sort of thing. But overall, I don't really I don't really see it making that much of a difference. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's just cynical or defeatist of me. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, on the I, I would say on the viewership side, absolutely nothing will change. Uh, I would hope that on the bigger election side of things, that it keeps a few of those really extreme rhetorical choices that we've heard 
being thrown out regarding elections, regarding election returns, regarding secretaries of state, regarding the people in charge of elections, regarding poll workers. I mean, some of the things that were said were just uh, horrifically terrible about these people. And so I'm, I'm hoping that if nothing, um, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a judge once told me that he liked having uh, speeders in the uh, courtroom because their wallet and their foot were directly connected. And the more he took out of the wallet, the more the foot came off the gas. And uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping it takes the foot off the gas a little bit in the I, future. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. Um, I'm, I'm not necessarily a confident will, but you know, a couple other things I wanted to mention about Absolutely. this. There were obviously a lot of people on the left who almost felt disappointed that Dominion did this, that Dominion was somehow selling out. And and to me, that's kind of a bizarre sort of, I mean, Dominion isn't trying to fight for democracy. Dominion's trying to financially recover from being defamed. And so if they yeah. had the certainty, the yeah, yeah, so the yep. certainty of that settlement as opposed to who knows what happens if it goes to court, to me, that seems like a totally reasonable, rational decision for Dominion to make. And I'm sure Smartmatic in a similar situation would probably make a similar uh, decision. Oh, and I'd add to it and just say, I think that uh, in every way to survive the business world, they had to do that. Get the name off the headlines as soon as possible, because otherwise you risk becoming Enron, you risk becoming Halliburton, you risk becoming something that's associated with it. So if you think elections and corruption and challenges, you would think Dominion. And wow, that's a gravestone. So you're, I agree completely. And you know, another thing is that a lot of people mocked Fox's statement, and I'll read the statement, at least the, the part that was most mockable, I guess, is we acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. This settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. Now, I think what people aren't maybe understanding or are, are deciding to willfully misunderstand is that, of course, Fox is not going to acknowledge that they said false things because there are other lawsuits Correct. pending. And so all they're Correct. doing is saying, yeah, we acknowledge that the court, the court said they're false, but it would be legal malpractice to say, oh, yeah, you know, we, we said these false things. That would be ridiculous. Um, and, and of course, they're going to say something about their high journalistic standards, even if, you know, there's eye rolls, because that's just too big that they've claimed, you know, from the beginning that they're just simply covering perspectives on this story that the mainstream liberal media is not covering. And so their legal case was essentially, hey, there are these people like the president and his closest advisors who said the election was stolen. And that sure seems newsworthy to us. And we're going to cover it. And I don't think that was a winning case, but they're not going to abandon that, especially when there were still uh, still another billion dollar plus pending lawsuit. Well, and as long as Hunter Biden's laptop is still out there, um, <laughs> you know, none of the. <laughs> sorry, sorry, had to do it, had to do it. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But... Well, it, it, we can transition. I'd like to talk about something with uh, the judicial, especially in dealing with Diane Feinstein and the Judiciary Committee, which has uh, really rocketed to the front. If you're okay with that, yeah. And, and I saw two main questions coming out of. Um, everything that has happened over this past week, and, and I'll recap, but the first one is, you know, should Dianne Feinstein resign? Um, the second thing that I'd like to cover then, too, is what impact is the judiciary having and what impact is it having on Biden's appointees and what impact could it have in the future? So these are kind of uh, two separate uh, questions, Mike. And so should be thinking through the first one um, on should she resign. Um, according to The Hill, 
Uh, nearly two-thirds of Democrats think that Dianne Feinstein should resign amid her prolonged absence due to health. Now, what's the prolonged absence? Well, she is 89, and she has been out for a full month with shingles. Um, so uh, that would seem like missing a lot of work, but I'd like to make sure we keep perspective here because uh, Congress only works roughly two days a week anyway. Uh, they average 140 days per year. So they're already, you know, showing up half the time to get triple the pay. Um, so I, you know, throwing rocks there a little bit. Um, but I think it has to do additionally um, with age on this one, especially because you're looking at the Pew Research Center sending out data, which said, you know, the average age of the Senate is 65. Um, the average age of the House is 58. Uh, when we're looking at the Senate, 86 out of 100 of the senators are 50 plus. Um, and 66 or 60 plus, that's two thirds. And Democrats average 50 years old and Republicans average 60 years old. So, uh, Mike, before we talk about how the judicial appointee is really impacting Biden's or, or his appointees or um, the rest of that, the judicial committee, please forgive me there. Um, the first question is, should she resign? And then I've got a loaded question, uh, which is how responsive is this for governing? When our averages um, are in the 60s plus, and this is not ageism, um, it's a question of technology and AI and other things are moving at a rapid fire pace. Um, when we look at those like Diane Feinstein, um, are they able to handle the subjects in a way that would best serve the new generations? So. I hope you like that loaded yeah, question. Yeah, no, I, I do, I do. I, 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 have a, I have a quick answer and, and then I'll expand. But yes, she should resign. Sure. Uh, okay. it, it's more than just being out with shingles. Uh, there have been reports for at least the last couple of years that she's had serious memory problems and serious to the extent of having a conversation with someone, having to be reintroduced to that person multiple times in that same conversation. And, and that's, I mean, I, I had a mom, my, my mom, uh, before she died last year, had uh, dementia for uh, a number of years. And I witnessed that firsthand. And it's a, it's a tragic thing. And so I, I have some kind of personal feeling connection to this. And yeah, there's just, there's just no way. I don't think she's in any shape to, to really, truly represent uh, the, the her constituents in California. And so what ends up happening then is her chief of staff and her office staff, who nobody elected, end up doing the real work. And, and to me, that is not OK. So I think that's I mean, we've seen this before. You know, Strom Thurmond served till he was 100. Uh, there have been, you know, multiple occasions of not just members of Congress, but presidents, I think in Wilson's case, right, who served, but clearly they were incapacitated to the point where they could not do the job. And so I feel I understand that, you know, she's been in there since 92 and you want her to go out with some dignity and on her own terms. But this is not this is her her constituents are not being represented and they haven't been being fully and truly represented for a while now. And to me. That's putting Dianne Feinstein, the person, ahead of those 40-some million people in California she's supposed to represent. And that, to me, is the opposite of being a public servant. So, yes, she should resign. What do you think? Okay, and I'll, I'll actually I, – I remember Strom Thurmond uh, coming to Clemson, um, dating myself but while I was there, <laughs> studying political science. And, and as a political scientist 
who was what 20 years old um we saw a man in a wheelchair come in who had a nurse on both arms and four other people following him and he couldn't talk and he couldn't eat um and this was before the election uh to to have someone who was over 100 representing so i i saw that and have a very I don't know if it's a strange spot in the Constitution that when it talks about a president or someone's inability to, you know, perform their job. And I think in Congress, it makes it really, really difficult here, though, because uh, what if I'm Dianne Feinstein and I say, OK, well, I've been out for a month. But that senator over there, he's voted on only 17 percent of the votes that we've had over the last two years. You know, I mean, do we do we start to measure that in as well? I know we don't. And that's a little off topic. But, but Mike, what do you think about the age of Congress before we get into kind of the judicial itself? Does this present any kind of issue for representation in your view? Well, I, you know, I, I'm sort of torn on this. I, I guess I understand the argument that people get to consider this when they are voting for someone. And certainly, in, for instance, in the presidential race, it's, it's kind of a similar issue, right? The age thing was raised with Joe Biden. It had been raised with Ronald Reagan. So this goes back. But I think it's particularly uh, problematic when you have Senate terms that are six years, because a lot can happen during that septuagenarian and octogenarian years. In, I mean, I, like I said, I saw it happen, you know, personally with my mom and millions of Americans have seen that. But I guess more generally, to, to understand the broader question you're asking is, yeah, I, I certainly do think there's something to be said for having uh, a Congress that looks more like America in a lot of ways, not just necessarily in age, but, you know, in, in other forms of background and in, in terms of in terms of race and gender and all those other things, because I think that can really bring something to the table Uh so, so yeah, but you know, you can argue that there with age comes wisdom, but I, I don't necessarily think that's true. I know a lot of you know pretty dumb old irrational people, as I do dumb young irrational people. So sometimes it can just make you more hard headed. So I don't know that there's necessarily well, yeah, yeah. fair enough. And I didn't <laughs> ask the the other devil's advocate question, which is that the House of Representative is the youngest, yeah, um, in history. Uh, and I could equally say, does that bode any kind of issues uh, that you see a new inflection or new influx of youth coming into the House? Yeah, and I think, in fact, it's the, the at least in the leadership, it's the Republican side that's younger than the Democratic yeah. side. And so, yeah, I think there's I mean, there's no question, I think, that people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s have more energy, generally speaking, have better processing power mentally than people in their 70s and 80s. Now, some people might be starting from a higher base, and so I think it's a very case-by-case -case thing. But, but, but yeah, I think when you have this sort of gerontocracy in charge in Congress, that that is a problem for, for a lot of reasons. What, what, what do yeah, you think? I, no, no, I, I think you're dead on in, in terms of it could be a possible issue. Um, is that something on the national scale uh, for Congress? I think the the wide breadth of youth and uh, those who are elder guard is very, very useful in governing for this country, both those who have the incredible fresh ideas and those who say, all right, ho hold your hold your horses just a sec as, you know, looking at it longer term, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think that 
I'm worried it progresses into something like was discussed uh, on the show in Tennessee, where you have two of the youngest members kicked out almost as children who have to go eat at the children's table, while the the other member who uh, clearly more senior, um, you know, uh, stop doing that and don't do it again kind of feel. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that that weird dichotomy, um, I hope, does not extend out. But that that's the only issue I would have with it being problematic. And, you, you know, when, I, obviously, when people get older, they have medical issues that prop up. And we've seen this a number of times in Congress with more typically with older members, John McCain with the with the brain of the brain cancer issues end up killing him. Ted Kennedy, a similar sort of thing. And, and right now, one well, not necessarily solution, but one idea that's been floated uh, by, in fact, the Norm Ornstein, who's at uh, American Enterprise Institute, has said maybe there should be a constitutional amendment to allow for a temporary replacement for a member of Congress who can't be there for an extended period, so that way. Instead of having no representation for that time, at least you can have somebody in there, some sort of process to make sure that those people are just essentially unrepresented during what could be an extended period. And I, I think there's maybe something to that. Now, obviously, it's not going to happen because it's a constitutional amendment and we don't do those anymore. But a simpler thing would be something like the Senate could allow just through a change in its own rules to allow for remote voting or for proxy voting uh, on committees and on the floor. That would be just like I said, it just would take a majority at the beginning of a new of a new uh, uh, Congress to change that. I, and I, I think I understand the argument. Well, they need to be there. You could set rules on it. So I'm at a fundraiser. I can't be in, on the floor. OK, that's not a good reason. But for, you know, medical things like I've got a brain tumor, I think that's, you know, a lot better reason, certainly. And, and I think that's totally uh, reasonable because if the, if the option is, well, you can either have less than perfect representation saying, you know, John McCain might have said, I'm giving my vote to Lindsey Graham while I'm gone, which he probably would have done because they were really tight, as opposed to saying like, well, I guess uh, the people of Arizona just don't have a say in this or at least have half a say in this when I'm gone. I think of those two not great options, the first one's a lot better. Uh, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I think they both <laughs> I'm going to play devil's advocate on both of them. Okay. So uh, if we had something nationally which said there could be a temporary replacement or replacement if there was um, a hiatus for health or something else than that, I, as a governor, um, would find a way to make sure that there was a problem for whoever that person was and then replace them with whoever I wanted to replace them with. Um, I think that it would make cases for removal or you know, what if you get COVID? Well, it's six weeks. You got to have six weeks, you know. Um, and if I'm a Republican governor and that's a Democratic member of Congress, can I replace them for those six weeks with a Republican? Does it have to be a member of the party? Uh, I think those are all super fun questions and would be all about, hopefully, if they passed uh, ironing those out. Um, the second one, proxy voting, something that has been discussed widely. Um, the biggest challenge, I think, is technology. In discussing things with uh, legislators, um, they rarely access their own email, um, uh, especially the elder guard. So now you'd have to uh, have them all um, voting electronically uh, without hackery. Um, I think you would face tech challenges, but I, I think that would be at least more accurate than having them just wave it off or at least mandating a, a vote or presence 
um, but not just showing up. Uh, yeah, I, I agree on that. And, one. You know, on, on the first thing, you could just say, well, it's at at the member's request and they have to they have to be the ones to ask for right, it. Right, and right. so like right. and I bring that up because in Feinstein's case, she actually was the person who requested to be replaced on the Judiciary Committee. And, and so it's not like there were some like Josh Holly's like, oh, they're trying to push her out sort of thing. No, it's she actually asked to have this replacement. Um, and so, you know, I. Yeah. But but anyway, so so I, I know there's that there's that second part of that question that we wanted to get to, which was the why this is so important and judiciary thing. But I thought before we did that, we could take a quick break and then come right back and talk about that. Okay, Ryan. So, yeah, the second part of that question that you wanted to get into is why this is so very important in this case. Absolutely. And um, uh, please interrupt if it comes off as too teachy in parts, Mike, please. So uh, this goes back again. This is who we are. Yeah, you know. So. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, so, so first, what I'm going to take a look at is how do Biden's judicial appointments, those that are made through uh, this committee, stack up against his predecessors? Uh, the Brookings Institute had an article on Biden's two-year total of appointments and said, quote, at the end of his first year, Biden had more appointments than any recent predecessor and of any predecessor except Kennedy. At the end of two years, his 96 appointments lag well behind Clinton and slightly behind Bush. These numbers um, generally are already higher than predecessors because and now we go back just a little bit to the Obama administration. We're looking at judicial appointments that occur through the Senate. And a major change that occurred during that time period was that the filibuster of judicial appointees uh, was ended. That a, a filibuster, um, which uh, normally a, a speaking delay, which takes a supermajority to shut down, an act of cloture, if you will. It's spelled weird and pronounced weird. Um, but uh, that changed and it eliminated them. Well, that means if you have the majority, everything sails through. Um, and that's a very dangerous prospect um, to have cleared that not only for Supreme Court justices, but also for any other judge that occurs. So when we're talking about a majority, um, we're talking about uh, having enough people on that committee to not only push it through, but force it through to make sure um, that the appointments go through with the majority because you don't have to worry about a filibuster. Now, um, it also said, quote, Biden's appointees increased his proportion of all district judges from four to 10 percent of the 674 statutory judgeships and up from seven to 15 percent of the 179 circuit judgeships. Obama appointees make up 34 percent and Trump appointees make up 30 percent. Um, so what they're showing is um, the district court judges, as they are appointed and holding these terms, uh, you get kind of a a mix of marble cake, if you will, of uh, all of the different appointees that have occurred back. And at this point, we have to Obama until they are replaced. Um, Democratic appointees now occupy 48 percent of district judgeships versus 41 percent for Republican appointees and 9 percent vacant. So uh, a 48 versus 41 split for the benefit of the Democrats. Now, um, Court of Appeal judges, however, quote, are 43 percent Democrat to 51 percent Republican. And Republicans made up 39 percent and Democrats held 50 percent when Trump was in power. So what we're seeing in the Court of Appeals section is a shift that has gone back from being held by um, the Democrats, generally 51 percent of those to being held by the, uh, the Democrats. Uh, I'm sorry, to the Republicans. And again, you've got to go back to 
Obama changing the entire discussion. And this was not only the end of the filibuster that was encouraged as a result of this, but the circuit courts changed with the partisan appointments therein. And then on the back of those circuit courts, um, gay marriage became legalized. So his appointees going through the judicial committee did in the end change social policy for the entire country. Um, and, and so that uh, is showing why the appointments that are here um, uh, make such a huge difference. And so I want to um, kick it to you on that after looking at some of these um, different, not only uh, makeups of the circuit courts, et cetera, but the role of the committee. Um, what do you think, Mike, in terms of how Biden will finish with his appointees versus those others? And also, do you see a switch um, going back towards the Democrats or that it may stay um, in Republican hands? Because uh, every circuit court except two um, either gained Republican judges or, or stayed the same from 2017 to 23, roughly. So I wondered what you thought about that situation. Well, yeah, on the Judiciary Committee thing, uh, of course, the, the reason why Republicans are so reluctant to or refused to allow Feinstein to be replaced is that because with her gone, it's 50-50 on the committee, which means they can't advance candidates to the floor for a vote where they would have a majority. And and so, uh, you know, back in the day, before we entered this era of serious partisan rancor, there was a thing called vote pairing. Uh, it's a, it's a, it wasn't a Senate rule. It was just kind of a norm. And what that was is if a member of one party couldn't be present to vote for illness or some other kind of you know reason, whatever it was, they would they would let the committee know and they would work it out with a, someone from the other party who wouldn't vote. So that way their their non-votes would cancel each other out. Now, unsurprisingly, this sort of the gentlemanly, if you will, or honorable sort of tradition has pretty much gone by the wayside now when politics is just an extended knife fight. So that was never going to be a thing. But yeah, when you you know the when you look at the composition of the courts, uh, obviously the higher up you go, the more important those advantages become. And and sometimes you don't even necessarily want to look at it just in terms of with the circuit courts, the number of judges, but actually who has a majority on the circuit. And so, there, you know, and so in the 13 circuits right now, Democrats have a majority on seven of them, Republicans on five. And then there's one, the third circuit, where at presently it's even because of, uh, I'm sure, uh, people waiting to be confirmed to that. And so presumably it will be at some point in the not too distant future, eight to five. And that's a big deal. But of course, the Supreme Court is six to three along those lines. So so, yeah, I mean, I would expect Biden to make up a lot of ground. This this slows things down a little bit. But presumably, you know, there there were still a number of nominees on the floor that haven't been voted on. And so it doesn't grind things to a halt. Not only that, but oftentimes I would I won't say that. Uh, judicial nominees are bipartisan, but I will say that they're less partisan than a lot else that goes around. If you take a look at especially district court uh, uh, votes uh, on the both in the judicial committee and on the floor, there oftentimes you'll see like 53, 47, the, the, they'll get like in the mid, sometimes even to upper 50s votes, these candidates that are confirmed. So 
there is a little more bipartisanship. In fact, one of the uh, one of the Republican senators said, well, they're still going to get a bunch of people through because Lindsey always votes for them. Lindsey Graham, who's on the Judiciary Committee and who kind of he's been on the Senate for a while. And I guess he harkens back to that idea of, well, maybe you shouldn't just vote against all Democrat judges because they're Democrat judges. And good for Lindsey Graham. I don't say that a whole lot, but I'll say that now. So so, yeah, there is a certain bipartisanship. And I think all in all. This might slow things down a little bit for Biden. And while maybe he won't quite get to the overall number of judges that Trump has appointed, and certainly barring something catastrophic, there won't be the same number of Supreme Court appointments, just looking at their ages and health and that sort of thing. But but yeah, he'll he'll make up he'll make up a lot of ground, but I don't think he'll end up doing as well as Trump. So this is a speed bump, I guess, and not ideal, but not catastrophic. That's how I see it. So I I, I would agree with part of them, <laughs> part of them not. Okay, uh, I see it. I mean, just in terms of looking at, uh, for example, and it's the evil guy. I mean, I know it is, but uh, Lindsey Graham um, seeing the good in Democrat judges as well as Republican judges. See, I see that as. Uh, scratching someone else's back so that you don't face any uh, backlash when your judicial nominees come in. Right. Um, or, but these are, and, and I think you bring up a really important point uh, for a lot of the listeners, which is we used to refer to these as the folk ways um, of the U S Senate, which was kind of the old way of operating. That's why you said the vote bearing, right. Um, this would be something like apprenticeship where um, as a new Senator for the first six years, I don't do a thing. And I don't say a thing. And I sit in the background and learn the ropes. And if I attempt to even take the floor, they take it away from me. But as we've seen um, Congress people kind of shorten that timeline because of the return that can be made. Hell, I'm a senator for two years. I'm going to go for president. You know, heck, it works. It, it, we can see ask it Obama. Works. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that literally my yeah. example. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So when we have that and see that it works and then we have this kind of slight look at judicial, and we've talked about this in some of the state Supreme Court races and some of the other judicial races, uh, even in discussions of Justice Clarence Thomas, we're seeing this this partisanship and this maybe this activity that we hadn't seen in the past creep up. And so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's par for the course um, that we can expect from here on out. They just become bastions of, of uh, public um, I don't know, politics and social culture. You know, if you have district courts go to war on an issue like we're seeing on, on, on the abortion issue, you know, do they just take up their mantle? Uh, do they feel that they have the ability to do that now and don't have to stay in the shadows? Um, it, there's a lot of questions that stem from it that we're seeing them so public right now. And, and, and it's crazy how, I mean, I think a lot of folks, especially who haven't been following politics for a long time, just assume this is sort of normal. But if you look at, for instance, Supreme Court nominations, which, of course, are going to be the most contested and contentious, uh, even even back as far as, uh, you know, the Obama administration, Justice Sotomayor got 68 votes. Now, that was in a that was in a Congress. I'm sorry, that was in a, a Senate that had 60 Democrat votes at that time. So but still. That's eight Republicans or, or Chief Justice Roberts got 78 votes, right? I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 96 votes. Scalia got 98 votes. No, no votes. And so if you take a look back at the history, 
this is a pretty, you know, a, a pretty unusual thing. There was a period where we didn't see this. And I think it's just kind of part and parcel of the incredible partisanship that we see in every other aspect of, of government. And it's uh, it's really too bad, I think. I, I would say it may be even a swing um, of interaction. And I say that because I think that the Supreme Court appointees didn't face a whole lot of challenge um, historically until, especially during the Reagan period, you know, we had borking come up as a terminology that, yeah. you know, you challenge nominee and you drag them over the coals. I mean, Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill and sexual harassment. And I mean, these are the origins of so many of these things that you have here. Um, and then you, you know, those are contentious appointments that we would look at and say, it makes sense that there is not an overwhelming majority voting for them. But I also think uh, when we're looking at Roberts, he brought in kind of a new way of answering questions because he got up there for um, the grill um, that we had seen for so many other candidates. Uh, and in fact, the candidate before him, Harriet Myers, you know, that she had to withdraw her nomination. Um, but he got up there and, and they asked him, OK, where's your position on abortion? Well, I don't know. I'd have to take a look at it. Yeah. Well, you know, you're right. Cause I mean, Bork you know made, I mean? yeah, Bork made the mistake of answering questions honestly. And after that, I was like, well, don't do that, man. Right. That's, but I think we're seeing a, an entire generation because what happened was if we watched the next uh, nominees, we look at Alito, same thing. I mean, the answer is, I don't know till I get there. I won't know till I get there because I have to have the perspective of that. And I think it keeps them out of those weeds. So I don't know if they get an overwhelming number of votes. Um, because people hopefully are reaching across the aisle or even Ryan's back. And he says they're getting an overwhelming number of votes just because, again, they're avoiding answers and we don't know where they stand uh, before they go to a position where they can only be removed by dying or retiring. You know, so I, I wanted to ask you, how how big of a deal do you think the Feinstein thing is for Biden's judicial nominations overall? Well, I mean, big. And so she, she's got to get back. Um, and if they don't fill it, it will be a sticking point. You're looking at one of the most contentious elections in history coming up. And I don't use that term lightly. We've discussed some of the others in the past uh, episodes that have been horrific in terms of how they treated each other. But um, it's in their interest to stalemate as long as possible. And I think that's why you see Mitch McConnell. Um, he came out yesterday, I think, and said they wouldn't even seat somebody. That because they have the ability to determine different appointments on committees that he would uh, suggest they go on a totally different committee if they were appointed even in her stead. And so I think it, it levels down to this this partisanship like you talked about going back and forth on it. Um, will he benefit Biden? I don't think he'll get the same number. I mean, he'll get average. They'll be fine. Uh, everybody's left with roughly, you know, nine percent open. Uh, so it's just kind of the way it was. But, you know, I, I think earlier in this segment, you mentioned the uh, doing away with the filibuster for judicial nominees. And of course, that, that started with the Democratic Congress and then Republicans removed it for the Supreme Court. And, and I got the sense yeah, that, yeah, you were very much against that. And, and I, I am too as well. I think, I think there's something to be said for having to get 60 votes essentially, because I, I think it forces a level of moderation and that I think is generally speaking a good thing in the courts. Well, you know, it's somebody once said it's the protest of the minority, you know, and it it is the only protest of the minority party. If we have a unified system that has a president of one party, a Supreme Court with a majority from that same party, the House controlled by that party and the Senate controlled by that party, um, 
that is a significant issue because it can railroad policy through without taking any kind of meaningful thought time on it. And the only check on that has been the filibuster that the minority party in the Senate can stand at the front and read Harry Potter, they have in the past, um, to stop it and to have a little bit more discussion even before progressing. Um, and if you take that away, there is literally nothing else that can be done because then the Congress, as well as the Supreme Court, just operate by majority rule. And so you take away a check. And that means that, you know, it's it's the tyranny in that case of the majority that 51 percent impressed their entire belief structure on the other 49 come hell or high water. Right. And Don't yeah, say gay. Yeah. Everybody. We're going that way. I mean, you know, it's it's this is how we should be. This is the dictate for how society should be. And I think. Well, I, you know, a, yeah, and I think it's absolutely Congress. Congress did, or the Senate did it absolutely the reverse way because uh, I think you can make a better case for removing the filibuster for legislation because legislation can be changed by the next Congress if you get a majority. But but a but a judge is not forever, but for you know that's a, that's a life term essentially. And so once that happens, then you're just stuck with that person for twenty, thirty years or more. And so I think if you're going to remove the filibuster, or keep the filibuster for anything. It should be for judicial nominations. And that was the. the yeah, yeah, man. You can make the argument that uh, a bill takes a, a ridiculous amount of time, nine months to 10 months on average. I mean, you're, the, the process is super inefficient. It's built to be that way. But if you want to make sure that you can actually become more responsive, do that. And then you've got checks at the presidential level, checks at the Supreme Court level, check at the state level, check at the court level, check at the district court, the appeal court, et cetera, et cetera. But if you take away any block for someone who then sits on the Supreme Court of the United States for their whole life, then the only way to get them out is to impeach them, which has never happened. And they won't ever touch that. Congress has said they'll leave them alone. I mean, that that's for your whole life. You're stuck with that individual. That is it. And I don't say stuck if if they act in the good of the country, right? But if they're acting for any mal intent, you can do a heck of a lot of damage over the course of, well, if you're appointed at 50, what, 50 years? Yeah. So. I mean, you know, it could happen, right? And it's, you know, this is obviously a, a very relevant thing. We won't get to this until the, the, the midweek uh, supporter show, but, you know, the stuff that's been uh, talked about with, with Justice Thomas, certainly. And that's, that's an example of, like you said, Justice Thomas is secure in his position, regardless of what you think. If you think he's the most corrupt judge ever, he, that, he's not going anywhere. You know, and he's going to be around for a while on the court, barring any kind of health issues. You know, so so yeah, that's exactly my point. Thousand percent. Yep. And if we think that Congress doesn't work a whole lot, uh, wait till you see how often the uh, Supreme Court pops out from behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I mean, they are entirely self-regulating, and and that ties into almost everything we're yep. going to discuss. In the Absolutely. Future. Are you ready to continue a legal discussion? Yeah, actually, that's, that was kind of a nice segue, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. All right. So now we go from here to a Supreme Court case, Groff versus DeJoy. And do you know the pronunciation, Mike? Am I getting it wrong? Uh, it? I think that's it. I, that's how I say it. I don't know. That's this. This is the problem. I don't watch. Right, right. I don't watch any TV news. So you know, uh, I kind of go by phonetically. So yeah, I think the joy, the groff. Yeah. Yeah. And after being in Louisiana, Nebraska, Virginia, I I, I don't know pronunciations of anything anymore. Um, in this court case, we see 
the justices examining how far employers need to go to accommodate religious practices of their employees. Um, from the SCOTUS blog, quote, federal law bars employers from discriminating against workers from practicing their religion unless the employer can show that the worker's religious practice cannot be reasonably accommodated without undue hardship. Now, I, I, as I'm reading that, I'm putting air quotes around both reasonably accommodated as well as undue hardship. And I mean that because in the Supreme Court, they, they tend to um, cast things very vaguely um, on purpose. But undue hardship was defined in 1977 as anything that would require more than trivial or minimal cost. Time Magazine says, quote, this means that employers have often scored legal victories in federal court after denying religious accommodations ranging from dress to Ramadan fasting. NPR has also said that the previous court cases examining the subject um, and its interaction and violation of the Civil Rights Act has determined that employers should not have to bear more than what is called a de minimis or trifling cost. So de minimis, undue hardship, right? Uh, SCOTUS rulings often approach topics like these um, that haven't really been clarified, and they do it on purpose for enforcement um, because they will make rulings so that states and localities can often apply them to the specific demographics or culture of that area. Um, for example, um, but they also, I, I, I want to go back to this subject. With this one, they look at rulings in the past. So when we're talking about this, it's dealing with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, recently, uh, U.S. versus Wilson ruled on the inability of police to search cell phones. Uh, that's the one where you don't have to unlock if a police officer asks, uh, because the case that it was built on, the whole ruling there was that a cell phone was treated like a pack of cigarettes. And so it could be searched for the presence of a weapon on the outside or in the case. But inside, it was more like a phone or a Rolodex or a diary um, that deserved protection. Um, so you get these these terms, uh, whether it be de minimis or undue hardship or, you know, even the freedom of speech. Um, and so that's really what they're starting to look at. Um, Groff is an evangelical Christian who declined to work for the USPS on a Sunday. Um, he said that it violated uh, the rest on uh, the Sabbath. Groff agreed to take other shifts elsewhere. So he said, please, uh, if if you can, schedule me somewhere else, but was still assigned uh, Sundays. He was disciplined when he refused to show up, and he was terminated uh, after several incidences. He was sued under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Groff is claiming that USPS did not provide reasonable accommodation. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals has disagreed and found that an accommodation for Groff would have had an impact on the entire environment. Um, so therefore, changing work requirements for one person on a Sunday would have changed the entire work requirements for everybody, as well as those who would have to take over, I believe. Um, one important point from Kagan uh, was that Congress can always change the law. As we've mentioned before here on this, this very episode, uh, Mike, um, but she said, quote, you can count on one finger the number of times Congress has actually overruled a court decision. Um, Time Magazine warns that this impact could affect, quote, the ability for Muslim women to wear a hijab, Jews to wear a yarmulke, um, Rastafarians to wear their hair in dreadlocks. Um, it could also affect religious employees' ability to attend scheduled prayer services, such as Jama or Sunday church, and could even affect employees who refuse vaccines. 
Um, Isaiah Berlin said that we have rights um, in this country, positive rights and negative rights. And our positive rights are freedom to do certain things that we would like. But there are also negative rights, those that are freedom from some kind of intervention. And so, Mike, I, I have a couple of questions uh, for you. Um, and I want to go through them and then address them however you want. But the first is, what is an undue burden or hardship in this case? How, how would it be even defined here um, if he asked not to be scheduled on a Sunday and then uh, they refuse to take that in? I mean, is that an undue burden or is he just climbing up the wrong tree? Uh, question two. Okay. How, how okay. Would, oh, start there. Start there. Okay. Go for it, man. So for question one, I, I want to point out that the Postal Service actually did quite a lot to accommodate Groff. First, they transferred him to a station that wasn't doing those Sunday Amazon deliveries at the time. Then when that station started doing Amazon Sunday deliveries, they said, how about if we let you go pray and attend services in the morning and then work later in the day and we'll try to figure out a range for other people to take your ship? He said, no, I can't do that. And then, the whole yep, yeah, they yep. tried to try to work around him until the point where there wasn't somebody available to take his shift. And that just created a whole huge problem in the schedule. And so everyone else and the postmaster had to take on additional work. So to me, on the question of whether or not this was an undue hardship or whether this was more than a de minimis thing, absolutely. But, but that's only okay. one of the questions. And I think the bigger question that, that you get to, is, well, what exactly is an undue hardship? And I think that the court's ruling, yeah, the court's ruling in Hardison, I think, was wrong on this. I agree, in fact, with the two dissenters, Marshall and Brennan, in, uh, in the dissent, which Marshall wrote, he, he said, as a matter of law, I seriously question whether simple English usage permits undue hardship to be interpreted to mean more than de minimis cost. And I think that's absolutely right. The idea that there's there's those two things are equivalent is just not correct. And I actually think that there are a couple of justices who seem to agree with that in, in the oral argument from this week. Uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, they seem to suggest that, well, maybe because the decision in Hardison referred to substantial cost a number of times. So I didn't use that as the standard. And that seems to me to be a much more reasonable point to say, well, not just more than minimal, but does the agency, does the organization face any kind of a substantial cost? Now, that's vague, but it clearly means more than just some minimal sort of thing. And to me, that makes more sense as a standard. And my sense is that's where the court's going to come down. They're going to sort of kind of overrule at least the de minimis part of uh, of Hardison, I think, without actually explicitly overruling it and just kind of shift the line a little bit. That That's my sense of where the court's going to uh, fall on this one. And I think that's that would be the right decision. Okay. Well, okay. If they come down on that side, as you're predicting, then how do you see it changing, if at all, uh, the way religion uh, interacts with workplace and t the Time Magazine thing, for example? So it, it's tough to tell when you're reading. I mean, one of the things that's discussed a lot is information, trying to make sure you get accurate information. But it's tough to tell whether it's just uh, scare tactics in order to uh, work up a viewership or a readership, or it is something that is accurate. So do you see this as a case that could extend, um, or uh, the first one, how will this change religion in the workplace? 
or do you see that? I don't think much. I don't think much at all. I think it's mostly scare tactics because if you apply even the de minimis rule that's currently in place, what sort of a burden would be uh, would there be to an organization to for somebody to wear a certain sort of religious gear or wear their hair in a way? It's hard to imagine a situation where that isn't just an entirely minimal. Burden. And so even under that standard, that would not be okay. That would be religious discrimination. So I, yeah, I, 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 I'll take, all right, can I play devil's yeah, advocate for a second? Yeah, please do. Okay. So, so I would say then as devil's advocate, I'm employed with um, a female who wears a hijab and it is uh, distracting to me. And I can't work efficiently because it distracts me and, and just doesn't sit well. So it's distracting to me. How about that? I yeah, mean, it, and, and that I think that's exactly the same sort of thing because that's not implying cost. In fact, one of the – it might have been actually in Marshall's dissent or actually, sorry, it was in uh, one of the, the circuit court ruling – uh, one of the judges saying that, well, we don't want a situation where we basically give a heckler's veto to somebody who doesn't like what somebody looks And so I, I think it is vanishingly – there's a vanishingly small chance the court will do this, especially because this is a court that has been – uh, very much in favor of ruling for greater religious freedom and religious protections. And so I see there being almost zero chance that that is going to in any way. Now, granted, this is a this is a Christian Catholic majority court, and that those are the cases that have come before them. But the same principles apply whether you're Christian or Muslim or Jewish or, or, or what have you. So, so, you know, I see this as a win for religious freedom, whatever your religion is. And I think that's a good thing. Okay, so then a win for religious freedom, is it a win for any kind of, I guess, social repercussion that will come out of this? Is uh, Do you see anything socially with those things that were listed? I well, mean, when yeah. we're talking about carving out every religion or every icon, I mean, I, time went short of just saying, if you have a cross around your neck too, you know, they'll rip it off you as you walk in so that, you know, you can't debate about that. It just, it, it seemed very extremist. Do does this have any social impact? Yeah, and I think that's think? the point. I think the I think the the court's ruling here is going to make that not more likely, but much less likely. At least much more likely to see that as a violation of Title VII, the Civil Rights Act. So the only kind of impact I guess I could see is this is going to be another thing that some folks on the left will point to as look at this court trying to integrate religion into public life, that sort of thing. But I, I don't see this because I think they'll actually. I think they'll actually rule, uh, let me be clear, I think they're going to rule against Groff because I think they're going to find that the Postal Service did more than met their burden of trying to accommodate him. And they were well within their rights to not grant him what they wanted. He wasn't actually fired. He resigned. So, but, And so that's not going to change anything for Groff. But, but I think the law, or at least the interpretation, is going to change in such a way to make it much more much much more to make it somewhat more difficult for employers to do sort of petty discrimination based on uh, a person's religion and i think that's a really good thing so uh kind of the because you brought this garbage up before us and we decided on it don't bring this garbage up here again kind of thing yeah and we're going to make it harder for you to bring this garbage up to right, right exactly, right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah so i absolutely I, this is this might be one of the rare cases where i'm 
going to be all for the court. Now watch, they're going to, they're going to rule in some way that totally befuddles me. <laughs> like, I don't know what the hell happened, but anyway. That's, there you go. That's the next week discussion, of yeah, course. Exactly. Right? So, so, yeah. <laughs> um, well, on, on the topic of uh, social impact, and we were talking about religion uh, and Supreme Court cases, I would like to move to a discussion of Bud Light if, uh, because it's Friday. Uh, how well, do you feel well, about that? you know, I just, I happen to just look at the clock and, and actually I think we might have to move that discussion into our, into our supporters midweek show, which is, which is also a great segue because I am also looking forward to this discussion of Bud Light and, and Dylan Mulvaney. And I definitely want to get into Justice Thomas and that corruption issue that some people are alleging and and talk about uh, taxes. Tax day was just this week. And so all of that stuff and maybe a little bit more, I don't know, we are going to get to on the midweek show. If you are not a supporter and you would like to become a supporter and get that midweek show, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and sign up. You can also support us on Venmo or at politics guys. You can support the show through PayPal as well. And all the support links are in the show notes also at politicsguys.com slash support. And when you become a supporter, you don't just get the mid, the full midweek show, not just the preview version, but you get ad free versions of everything. There are various other bonuses at certain levels. And so a lot of good stuff. Also our discord, which is always a lot of fun and interesting and I'm on it, Ryan's on it, Trey's on it. And so you can interact with us and uh, a lot of great, great folks on there. So I would encourage you to check that out. But if you're in a position where you just can't afford to become a supporter, but you want the full midweek show, not a problem. Send me an email, Mike at politicsguys.com and I will get that set up for you. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us if you subscribe, rate and review us on whatever podcast app you happen to be listening on and share episodes on social media. That's the best advertising. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us for whatever reason, we can do it through old fashioned 20th, late 20th century email, mail at politicsguys.com. There's the discord I mentioned, as well as Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find links and the show notes. And before we go, I also want to say a special thanks to our new supporters. First off, Carol, who I know of as a Joan. Thank you so much for becoming a supporter. And also Jose, who's the new trial supporter. That's something you can do as well. Try us out for a month. And if you don't like us, hey, that's fine. But if you do, you can stick uh, with us. And go again, it's uh, patreon.com slash politics guys for that. And finally, as always, an extra special thanks to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope to join us.